0: John chapter 4, will begin at verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband, Jesus said to her. You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband." This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that, Jerusalem, or that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we know that your word is pure and your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Teach us, Lord, from this word and sanctify us in your truth, for we confess that your word is truth. In the name of Christ, amen. In John chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, we pick up in the middle of a conversation uh, between Christ and the woman of Samaria. They are at the well, known as Jacob's well, and first she is startled. We learn that in verses 7 to 9, that there is this man, a Jewish man, talking to her about having water or her helping him obtain some water to drink well christ being the the perfect teacher the master teacher the master evangelist he is now going to begin an evangelistic conversation with this woman of samaria and in our part today that there are two main parts verses 10 verses 10 to 14 describe Jesus using the symbolism of water to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in her life. The symbolism of water or living water, fresh water, as a way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in her life. And then he confronts her sin in verses 16 to 18. In 16 to 18, he confronts her sin. So, chapter 4, verses 10 to 15, 10 to 15, and then 16 to 18. Those are the two main sections. And what can we learn? Firstly, verse 10, it says, Jesus begins a conversation because she is startled and some look at it, I should say, some look at this passage and this dialogue at this point as just a matter of fact or just a matter of curiosity on behalf of the woman, that she just doesn't know or she's confused and perplexed. How is it that this man is talking to me and mentioning these kinds of things? Some look at it that way. Others look at this passage as though she is being sarcastic. She is being snarky. She's being critical of him, but kind of mocking him because of the way that he is asking her and talking to her. Especially, for example, in verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Right? You are just an unknown Jewish man, and yet we know Jacob, and our background is with Jacob, is what her claim is. So if there is any credibility to that critical part, uh, that might be one such reason. But whatever the case, whether she is sincerely confused and doesn't understand, or she is being a bit critical or sarcastic with him. In either case, Jesus addresses what she needs by way of illustration and then he bridges the gap to her sin in order for her to benefit from the illustration. In other words, he's preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we have to tell people what it is that they might obtain. That is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But before... They can actually receive this eternal life. They have to come to a point of confession and repentance and admission that they are indeed sinners. And that's what Jesus does. He presents the good part, the living waters or eternal life. But he also presents the part that she has to be confronted with. She has to own up to her own sin. And then, only then, can she have this eternal life. Verse ten. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There are two points in this condition. If you knew the gift of God and if you knew who was talking to you, if you knew the gift of God and who is talking to you, what is the gift of God? The gift of God is the eternal life which he mentions in verse 14, springing up to eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life, which coincides with Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is this gift of God. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's a gift of God. If she correctly comprehended, if she correctly understood this marvelous gift of God, her response to Christ would have been different. So that means we have to explain to people this true gift of God. We must explain the true gift of God. And we know based on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that it is not a result of works. We know from Romans 6, 23, that it's further modified as the free gift of God, the free gift. And in this case also, this woman, we we will see, she is a dishonorable woman because her sin is a, a visible sin. She has had five husbands and the man she now has is not her husband. So we do know she is a sinful woman. So there is no way, there is no way that she's going to be able to obtain eternal life then and there during this conversation or at the close of this conversation she has with Christ based on her good deeds. So in all these ways, we understand that the gift of God does not be, uh, is not presented to us, is not given to us after we have done one good thing or after we have done ten good deeds or a hundred or a thousand good deeds or if our good deeds outweigh our evil deeds on the day of judgment. It's not like that. The gift of God is 100% given by God to undeserving sinners. That's the way it works. It's completely a gift of grace. If it is by grace... It is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's either grace and faith in Christ, which that faith in Christ comes by grace, or it's done by works. That was Romans 11, verse 6. Romans 11, 6, it's either by grace, a gift of grace, or it is by works. If she comprehended it, it would have helped her. She will eventually comprehend it by the end of the chapter we're going to see. She will. But at this point, she doesn't. And at this point, nobody had explained it like this to her. This is the first time, presumably, she's hearing these things. The first time she's hearing of this marvelous, free, undeserved gift of God, eternal life. She hadn't heard it before. So that's the one. If she hears it, she would have wanted it. Number two, verse 10. And who it is who says to you. She doesn't know who's talking to her. She knows a man is talking to her. She knows a Jewish man is talking to her. She understands the language in which he's talking to her. She understands these things. She understands that he's thirsty. He's weary from his journey. She understands all those things. But she does not understand the true nature, the true identity of who it is that is right before her very eyes. She doesn't understand that this is the Christ, the Messiah. She knows that Messiah is coming, we saw from verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming, Messiah or Christ. She knows that he is coming into the world, but she doesn't know that the one speaking to her is indeed Jesus Christ. She doesn't know. And that's why she doesn't ask for it. She doesn't want it. She doesn't desire it because she doesn't know the person of Christ. There too. For us to receive this gift of God, for us to understand this gift of God, we have to know this gift in the face, in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name given under heaven uh, among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. So if we understand who it is that is speaking to us or our source of salvation, our source or basis of salvation, the one who provides our salvation to us, then we ha- are prepared to receive this eternal life. But if we don't understand the gift and we don't understand the main person in the gift, the, the person, the object of the scriptures, the purpose of the scriptures is to point us to Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that fact, then we're not going to understand the gospel. Now, he says that if you understand this gift and if you understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you would have said, um, you would have asked him and He would have given you living water. If you had truly understood this great and marvelous gift, and if you had truly understood who it is who provides it, who is the centerpiece of this gift, if you knew those things, then you would have asked, and He would have given it to you. Now, in this case, He is assuming when He says, you would have asked Him, you would have asked that the Holy Spirit would have worked in her heart to the point that she would cry out to Christ and beg him for mercy. He is assuming that. Now you might say, why is he assuming that it would have been the work of the Holy Spirit? We will see elsewhere that he's going to be mentioning the Holy Spirit by name. Firstly, notice... That it has to be the work of God has already been told to us in John 3, 21. John 3, 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. How were the deeds, the good deeds of those who practice the truth, how is it that they come to God? Because they were wrought in God. They were done in God. They were made in God. They were not made apart from God. So he has to be the living God, the living spirit, has to be the one who drives it, who causes it, who creates that possibility in sinful man, according to John three twenty-one. Further, in John chapter 3, specifically, he does mention the Holy Spirit. Three verse six, John three six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's either flesh or spirit, and we must be born of the spirit. We don't cause our own birth, we don't cause our own rebirth. Here, the rebirth is caused by the spirit. John six sixty three, John six. 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The spirit gives life. For her to ask, she would only ask if the spirit created new life in her to ask Christ. He means. Further, let's compare this with the gift of God. John chapter 6. John 6:26. 6, John 6:26. The work of God and the gift of God. 6:26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of man shall give to you, for on him the Father that is God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. How are we going to believe in him, the son, whom the father has sent? We're going to believe if the work of God takes place. And if the work of God takes place, what will we do? We will believe. If the work of God takes place, we will believe. The work of God produced the miracle of food, physical food for the multitudes. They're coming and following Christ for that. And Jesus pushes them away and says, don't come to me because of that. Come to me because of the spiritual food. And then they are curious how are they going to get this spirit or this food that endures to eternal life? They're still confused and they're thinking in physical terms. But Jesus says and changes it and says, the work of God is for you to believe. So the work of God by the spirit will give you this gift, this spiritual food that you need that leads to eternal life. And one more place. One more place is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And as you're finding your way there, why is it that we have to understand this truth? That if someone believes, or if someone asks Christ, that that has to be caused by the work of God, the miraculous work of God, the Holy Spirit. Why do we have to believe that? Because the common belief is that each one of us, each one of us has an amount of grace or an amount of faith given to us by God so that we exercise our will, our good will and our free will with the little bit of grace that we have to exert our will and that all we need to do is choose God and because we chose God, we, therefore, will be saved by God. God does everything else, but that's our part. Our part is to choose him, to use our will, to use our strength, to do something good like that, and then we have salvation. But the scriptures are showing that it doesn't work that way. It works the opposite way. That is, it's 100% God causing new life, causing the desire, causing the choice, if we might say, causing that choice. It's not us causing the choice, it's God causing the choice to happen in us. First Corinthians two will explain. First Corinthians two We'll start at verse six two six. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let's pause there for a moment. He's saying that we have wisdom or we have a mystery that was predestined, verse 7, before the ages, before the world was created, to our glory. That has been given to us. But the rulers of this age, those who crucified Christ, they did not understand it. Because if they did understand it, they wouldn't have crucified Him. Now, when he says they didn't understand it, he means they didn't understand it for the redemption of their soul unto salvation. We did but they did not, right? We now have understood it for the redemption of our soul, but they did not. And because they did not, they crucified Christ. Well, what makes the difference between them and us? And us and them? What causes the difference? He says, 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. What is it that God has prepared? What is it that He has caused us to see and hear? 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows, except the Spirit of God. For we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. By freely he means graciously. We don't deserve it, but God caused it to happen. Freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In 14, he says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Well, he doesn't accept them because the Spirit didn't teach him. The Spirit didn't teach him in the sense that the Spirit didn't convert his heart to reveal it to him, to make him understand, to believe it. That's what he means by the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, in the case of the woman of Samaria, we will read later that eventually she and others, they do believe and when they do believe it happened because the spirit caused them to believe the spirit awakened their dead souls to believe to desire to believe that's what happened now 1 corinthians 2 14 a natural man does not accept we know that this is true of many people in scripture it's not enough To have knowledge or to have factual knowledge, to have bare knowledge, to to have the bare facts, that doesn't save anybody. We need true facts. We need true knowledge, but that's not enough. We need the Holy Spirit to convert, to apply that knowledge to the dead, unresponsive soul. That's what we need to happen, correct? In Scripture, there are many who have this dead Knowledge. They have true knowledge, but it does not benefit them. In fact, it will harm them and it will be worse for them on the day of judgment. Judas Iscariot. No one can deny that Judas Iscariot knew the truth and he preached the truth. It says in Matthew chapter 10, among the 12 disciples, Judas is mentioned, and he was commissioned to heal people of diseases, to cast out demons, and to preach the kingdom of God, or the preach the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, to preach that. And he did preach it. But it's not just true of Judas Iscariot. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, And many will say to me on that day, many, many, not just Judas, but many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. This will happen to many people on that day of judgment. So it's not enough to know what's right, it's a matter of whether the Holy Spirit has truly converted us, truly changed us, truly given us new life. And when that happens, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's not only the Holy Spirit. It's not only the Holy Spirit who is sent to quicken, to enliven a dead soul, but it's also Christ. Christ is the one who decides whether someone is saved or not. Because he says he is the source he would have given you living water. He would have given you this life. Luke Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. Luke 10:21. At that very time He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes or infants. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Uh, who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Verse 21, Christ is greatly rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. He praises God, the Father, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He praises God because God hid the truth that saves people, he hid the truth of salvation from the wise and intelligent. He means the worldly or fleshly wise and intelligent. The average person in the world who because of his training, because of his knowledge, because of his his degrees or where he studied or the people he knows or the wealth that he has, these people are the worldly wise and intelligent. Those people God hid the truth from them so that they're not saved. But God revealed it to babes, infants. And he means people who actually are humble, who have the true knowledge of Christ and who have a childlike faith in Christ. Those are the babes or infants. And God is well pleased to do so. And Jesus acknowledges God is well pleased. 22, everything has been handed over to Christ by the Father. And there's no way anybody can know God the Father except through the Son, he says. And then, who are the people who are going to know the Son and the Father? And who decides ultimately how that happens? He says in verse 22, And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Christ is the one then. Christ is the one who wills to reveal the Father to people, whoever is chosen. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit work together to redeem the individual soul. And if that doesn't happen, then there is no redemption. Father, Son, and spirit. And this is an important point to make about Christ because the Christ that is proclaimed these days is a very, very um, weak, a very, very dull, a very, very uh, sappy kind of Christ who does not do tough and difficult things. He does not preach tough and difficult things. Uh, difficult things. He does not have difficult expectations of people. He does not have any sternness or severity in him. But in this case, that someone might be saved depends on Christ, he said. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's only Christ. Either Christ is going to redeem a soul or he's not going to redeem a soul. It's not as though Christ is Very nervous. It's not as though he's twiddling his thumbs. It's not as though he's anxiously sitting in heaven, wanting and longing and waiting for this or that person to use his wisdom, to use his power to believe in him. He is not jittery in heaven. He's not sitting, knocking his knees in heaven. That's not the way Jesus is. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He's the master in heaven. So he's got management or control or sovereignty over all things that are going on in the world. he is the one who gives. That's why it's necessary, like the tax collector, to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And when that happens, God shows his mercy. Well, this is what he's preaching. He's preaching this by way of illustration. Yet she doesn't understand or she pretends not to understand, whichever is the case. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? I want living water. I want this fresh water. Yes, I I draw from a well, a deep well, a hundred or more feet below. And I have to take my bucket and I have to take the rope and I have to... uh, cause it to go and descend all the way down and keep pulling it up. And then I have to fill my pitchers, my water jars. I have to do that. And it's very arduous. It's very difficult to do that. And I do this every day, perhaps even more more than once a day. I do that. I want a way to overcome it. And you, you just said you have water, but why would you ask me for a drink? She's not wondering, or maybe she's wondering... Why did you ask me for a drink if you've got living water and you're offering it to me? Why are you asking me for a drink? And you don't have any equipment. You don't have a bucket. You don't have rope. You don't have anything. Why are you talking like this? What's her problem? Whether she's sincerely this way or pretentiously this way, what's her problem? It's the same problem of Nicodemus in the previous chapter. Nicodemus, the sophisticated, intelligent, academically trained, Nicodemus, he did not understand when, he, when Jesus said to him, you must be born again. He thought of it in physical terms instead of spiritual terms. Here too, she's responding in physical terms instead of spiritual terms. She also. This is the way people are. This should not surprise us. We were this way and others are this way still. Unredeemed people are this way. They think only of what they can see, only of what they can touch, whatever they can do with their own eyes and ears and mouths, hands and feet, that's what they're thinking all the time. They're not thinking about the unseen world. They don't correctly or rarely think of the unseen world. They are thinking of whatever it is day by day, whatever temptations they have, whatever attractions they have, whatever responsibilities they have, however they are living a hectic life, they are thinking about those kinds of things, those daily activities, just as she is. She needs water. It's a hot day. And this man is thirsty and he wants water. She's thinking in physical terms. But that's where our duty comes. Our duty is to get beyond the physical illustration or the physical circumstances of life and bridge the gap to the spiritual. Bridge it to the spiritual because everything ultimately Of greatest value is spiritual, not physical. Further, she objects in verse 12. Not only is Christ ill-equipped, his person, she challenges his person, his identity. Verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Who are you? You are a descendant of Jacob, you are not greater than Jacob. How can you be greater than Jacob in terms of a physical way to have something better than what Jacob provided for us? Jacob himself drank and he had to drink repeatedly. Even his animals had to drink repeatedly from this well. So how can you have something better or greater, whether physically and even spiritually? How can you have anything better than Jacob? When we do know that the spiritual part of the conversation comes up later. But in her mind, she says, our father Jacob, how are you better or greater than Jacob? Well, he already challenged her thought in verse 10. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Why was it that at that time she didn't ask him, well, who are you? Why didn't she ask? If he said, you need to know who I am, why didn't she ask? And in verse 12, she's challenging his identity, right? And then she comes closer to the truth. In verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, like one of the other prophets. But then in verses 25 to 26, she gets this knowledge of his true identity. She understands Messiah is coming, And then Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Now she knows. But she should have asked that question from the very beginning. She doesn't. And when she doesn't ask the question, she has the audacity to challenge his identity. So in ignorance, with her audacious attitude, she is challenging his identity saying, you are not greater than our father Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah was one of those tribes. And then the family of David. And from the family or dynasty of David came our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Correct? So Jesus himself is, in a true sense, a descendant of Jacob in every way. Jesus our Lord is. But she is not. Notice this. She is not, yet she is attaching herself to that name Jacob. Why is she not? Remember we said about the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a mixed race, a mixed breed. They were not completely Jewish. They were partially that, but not completely that. They were not that in terms of their identity, ethnicity they were not, because some Assyrians and others from the Assyrian Empire came to dwell in the northern part in the area of Samaria and they mixed and mingled in marriage, right? Not only did they do that in marriage, they did that in religion because they adopted the Assyrian pagan idolatrous worship there in the north and mixed it with their own religion. Furthermore, they even discounted most of the Old Testament books. Remember, we spoke of the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch means that the Samaritans said only the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the word of God. Nothing else is the word of God. Nothing else in the Old Testament is the word of God, they said. So, in terms of wrong beliefs of Scripture, wrong beliefs of religion, and even wrong ancestry, she is wrong on these matters. And yet, she's claiming that. She's claiming Jacob. And what's the problem with that? Not only is she factually wrong, but her confidence is wrong, her hope is wrong, her assurance is wrong. Isn't that what people do? Remember, when John was baptizing people, the multitudes would come to him and John would say to him, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father, for God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John told the people, don't say, we've got Abraham, we've got good blood. Don't say that. Don't depend on that. There's no salvation in that. You need to believe in Christ. And the same goes with us. If uh, if, uh, a human... If a a man or a woman walks into a barn, does that make him a bull or a cow? No. Or if a man or a woman walks into a church building, does that make him a Christian? No. No. It depends on faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But she's not depending on that. She's depending on her pedigree, being a part of Jacob even in a small way, even though that might be true, but not in the way of Christ. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now he's more clearly making a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. But we will see in verse 15, still she doesn't understand. Because she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't understand or pretends not to understand. She doesn't. Well, in 14, he says clearly that if you drink this water, this water that I asked you to give me a drink, If you drink this, you're going to thirst again. But I've got something that if I give it to you, there again, he is the source. I shall give him. I shall give him, he says twice. If I give this to you, it will spring up to eternal life. Right there, she should have understood. I'm talking about eternal issues. I'm talking about eternal life and eternal death. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about mere physical water to, um, to quench a thirsty mouth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the water of eternal life that will spring up, that will bubble up, that will be fresh in your soul because you have dead water, stagnant water inside of you. And you need living water, running water, fresh water. Yes, the, the spring or, or the the well from which she would have been pulling water up, it has a spring, right? Underground spring. That's why it's called living water. She would have been receiving from that source to drink physical water. But in the same way, the spiritual water comes from a deep-rooted underground source. It's a source that she does not create. It's not a source that she invents. It's a source that God Provides and God gives, and that is the well that springs up to eternal life. John chapter three. John chapter three verse five. Who is or where is this water found? Verse John, John chapter three verse five. Jesus answered, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter." into the kingdom of God. Remember, we said that most likely the best way to render, translate that verse, born of water, that is the Spirit. Born of water, namely the Spirit. Born of water, I mean, let me clarify, the Spirit. I'm using water as a physical illustration of the Holy Spirit. Unless one is born of the Spirit. And why do we say that? Because verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. He's emphasizing the need to be born of the Spirit. And this is that water that will spring up and produce and provide this eternal life. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John 7, 37. John 7, 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Who is he talking about? 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's promising there, clearly, that this live, r- flow rivers of living water equates to the Holy Spirit. If we do not understand the analogy, the Apostle John says he means the Holy Spirit. That is what we need, springing up to eternal life. John 6, 35. He, he said, John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Never hunger and never thirst. Now, a brief word of clarification. He definitely means the Holy Spirit, but he does not mean that we will never have a desire for spiritual things, never have a desire for eternal life, never have a desire for more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's not talking about desire. He's talking about the difference between a dead ground and a live ground or a dead heart and a live heart. A barren land, a parched land, a drought-filled land, and a productive land, a fertile field. That's what he's talking about. And once we have this fertile field, yes, the field will receive more and more water, more and more rain. It'll produce more and more fruit. But that fertile field will never become parched again. That's what he means. That it's going to spring up or well up to eternal life. It will endure that way forever. This also would be another proof of the doctrine of when we are truly saved or regenerated, that that condition remains leading to eternal life. That's what he means by this. He's not talking about our desires. Our desires will always be there longing and and striving for eternal life. Well, verse 15, we've already said, she does not understand it. Because she says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to drop. She's still thinking about this water. And as though he is some inventor. Jesus is some inventor of something physical that's going to give me all the comforts and conveniences of life that I want. But that's not what Jesus meant. He's not a master inventor. He is the master of heaven. And he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit an eternal life. Well, because she doesn't understand the good part Because she's persisting in that, he's trying to now show her or open the window of her mind and heart by making her understand. I'm not talking about that which we drink by our mouth, or that which is hard and physical bread that we put into our mouth. I'm not talking about those things. In order to make her understand that, he goes to her sin. Because once you start talking about sin, then, even an unbeliever says, oh, okay, I know now what you're talking about. Okay, now you're getting, you're hitting close to home. Now I, I see, you're talking about ethics. You're talking about morality. You're talking about God. I understand now. And that's what Jesus does. He transitions. He pursues the, the spiritual and the illustration for a point, to a point, And now he gets to her sin. And when he gets to her sin, then her eyes are going to open, right? Because... We see in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Oh, okay, now I'm getting it. And then she starts to ask him spiritual questions about where to worship. Right? So we too, when people just don't get it, when we are trying to illustrate and talk to them about eternal life, we have to quickly get to their sin. Get to their sin. So verse Sixteen. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband and come here. Now, Christ, he knows all things, right? And he knows she's not married. He even knows her background, which he's going to announce to her. In the book of John, John has already told us about this kind of knowledge that Christ has. John chapter 2, John chapter 2, Verse 23, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not believe the people who believed in him, because he knew their true heart. He knew it was a superficial, outward, artificial kind of belief. He knew all men and he knew those in particular at the feast were frauds. He knew that. So he didn't believe in them or entrust himself to them. Well, the same is happening here. So he puts her to the test. When he says, go call your husband and come here, he puts her to the test to draw out from her words by which he Jesus can proceed in the conversation. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. That's all she says. I have no husband. Is she telling the truth? Yes. But she's avoiding the the issues of ill repute. She's avoiding the shame. She's avoiding embarrassment. She merely says, I have no husband. And this is what sinners do. They will concede to us to a point, but they won't expose it all. They don't usually expose it all when we explain sin to them. They will expose it to an extent, but not fully. Well, because she's not fully explaining herself, explaining her background, she's giving something that is factually true, but not fully true, based on what Jesus is trying to do. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have, whom you now have, is not your husband. This you have said truly. He acknowledges, yes, you don't have a husband. However, I know more about you. I know that you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In this way, when he says you have had five husbands, this is assuming that there was something amiss about it. It's most likely not the case that one husband, she married the first husband, he died. She married a second husband, he died. She married a third, he died. Most likely that's not the case, otherwise he wouldn't have brought it up as an issue. Most likely there was something amiss, something unethical, something immoral, something contentious, some problem with all of these husbands. And that's why one after the other, she had to divorce and remarry, divorce and remarry, until she gave up on doing all that. And she's with a man. She's with a man who is not her husband. He brings out her sin. Remember, it will usually be the case that whenever we are conversing with people who are unbelievers, there will typically be at least one sin that comes to the surface, that one sin that comes right in front, in front and center in our conversation with that individual. And when that sin comes to the surface, that's the sin we use as the platform to explain the gospel or further explain the gospel so that the people repent of sin and believe in Christ. By the way, today, these days, um, if you say something about homosexuals, Sodomites. If you say something to them, they'll say, well, why are you only talking about that sin? Why are you only bringing that up? Why is that the only sin that you criticize? Well, sir, that's the only sin you brought up. That's the sin you brought up. I didn't bring it up or you flaunted it and that's why I'm addressing it. That's the reason why we're talking about a sodomy as a sin. We're not talking about all these other sins that are sins because that's the situation, that's the occasion that's what you flaunted that's what you boasted in that's what you said you believe that's why we're talking about it and that's the same here this is the sin that comes to the surface so he addresses it we also uh, need to see that this sin being with a man who is not your husband is not just a sin in the samaritan woman but this is a sin of every age, of every nation. It happens everywhere around the world. And it is still a sin. Though few people speak against it, few people preach against it, we must recover this because we don't get to the point of endorsing sodomy unless before that we were endorsing other things. First, we were endorsing Uh, removing Bible knowledge and prayer from the Christian life. We removed church attendance from the Christian life. We made all of these things uh, uh, non-essential, non-essential. And even now the government has called it that, non-essential, unessential. Okay, those things we have to first remove. Then we have to remove marriage. We have to remove um, husband and wife being married till death do they part. Then we make divorce easy. Then we make divorce easy. Then we say, we don't need children. We don't need children. Children are a burden. Children are an inconvenience. We, we can't support them all. So instead of having children born into the world, let's just kill them or murder them before they come into the world. Let's murder them. And let's set up so-called clinics so that we can murder our babies. And then, when they grow up, well, if you love one another, if you love one another, then it's okay to have sex with each other. The Bible identifies that as sin or fornication. They permit that. They permit adultery. You can go in and out of marriage, have more than one husband at the same time, have more than one wife at the same time, but not calling them husbands and wives. You just go sleep around and do whatever you want to do. All of those things happen, and now we're dealing with sodomy. Well, let's go further back. Let's go, at least in the sexual sin category, let's go to fornication. What does the Bible say about fornication, which is when a a man and a woman have sexual relations before marriage? The Bible calls that sexual immorality, and it calls that fornication. to, To prove that or to show that, let's go to a couple of places in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does stop depriving one another except by di- by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control it's good if we remain single, and he says that later so that we might serve the Lord later in this chapter. But he says in verse 2, because of immoralities, but because of fornications, because people do these kinds of things, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. So he says, then marry. Be married, and then it will not be a sin. And then to illustrate further, he says in chapter 6, chapter 6, Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, harlot or prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality or fornication. It's the same word as chapter seven, verse two. Flee immorality or fornication. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Then, is this a sin that will lead to eternal punishment? Can people practice this sin and still go to the kingdom of God? No. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, which is the same word as our word in six eighteen and 7, verse 2. It's the same word, just translated differently because it's talking about people, fornicators. So it just, it could have said immoral people. It could have translated it that way. But that fornicator is someone who does it outside of marriage or before marriage, premarital sex, fornicator. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So no one inherits the kingdom of God by practicing these sins. But redemption is possible. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And now we have come full circle. The, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, they are the ones who wash and sanctify us if we are to be redeemed from these sins. And that's what Jesus is offering to her. Eternal life, redemption, cleansing, washing, sanctification, holiness, kingdom of God, and inheritance, eternal inheritance, if she would believe in the gospel. And he will continue to talk. Eventually she will, thankfully in her case. And may that be true of each of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.